Hare Krishna. Okay, there we go. So this is the last day of Kartik, November 14th, 2016, here at the Radharadana Temple in South Africa. And thank you all for coming. The last day of Kartik. And of course, Kartik is especially a day that we offer lamps to the Lord. There's many statements in the scripture that if you just offer a lamp to the Lord in this month, then the Vaikuntha airplane will come and take you to the spiritual world at the end of this life. Uh, That means that there's that much potency in the activity. It doesn't mean that every single person who does it will get that result, but it means that it's possible that the potency is there. So I thought we would talk a little bit about light. Is that all right? Okay. So, of course, Krishna says that he is the light of the sun. He says he's the light of the moon. He also said that he's the light in all luminous objects. So, that means these light bulbs. That means even the light, right, on your phone. That that's Krishna. (laughs) All right. Bless you. So you know there's a there's a tradition in India that people go to the Ganges and they take a palmful of Ganges water and offer it to the Ganges. Why are they offering the Ganges water back to the Ganges? But this is the general principle, just like Krishna says, Pacham Pushpam Palam Twayam Yome Bhakti Prayatiti Tanaham Bhakti Paritam Ashnami Prayatatunaha. You can offer him a leaf, a flower, fruit, or water. But where are we getting that from? We're getting it from him. So the same with the light. Krishna is the light. He is. Maybe we can meditate on that for a minute. If you can become aware of the light filling this room. Um, If you could all... Turn your phones to vibrate, that would be really nice. And if you're expecting the Queen of England to call you, maybe just (laughs) wait outside for your phone call. So we become aware of the light in the room. That light is Krishna. And when we take a flame and offer it to him, we're basically offering him back uh, what he's given us. Now, that's not that he needs the little lamp. If he's the light of the sun and the moon then he certainly doesn't need our teeny tiny little lamp for any sort of useful purpose for himself, correct? Right, if you go to some very rich person like Bill Gates and you say, here's a hundred rand, you know, (laughs) (laughs) an interesting sound effects here tonight. So so I I think Mr. Gates, he wouldn't be able to use it for anything. Uh, but he might be pleased with the gesture. <laughs> this will be a humorous class, right? I don't even have to tell the jokes. <laughs> so, you know, just like when I was a child, my, my parents would give me some money, a little allowance, and on my parents' birthdays, I would use that money to buy a present for them. 
So it was their money. Uh, but it was just the, the love, the affection. I know one of my godbrothers told me that he thinks he, he understood a little of this when one of his children was very small and his little boy gave him a stick, just said, here's a stick. <laughs> and he thought the object itself didn't have much value, but it was the relationship. It was the mood that I want to be giving you something. So the Lord is giving us light, and we also want to give him uh, some light in exchange. And if we think about uh, light itself and how we're dealing with light every day, from the sun, from electric bulbs, from candles, uh, from our devices, and how can we become Krishna conscious How can we become conscious of the Lord when we interact with this light? Because that is the essential purpose of life, to become conscious of God. Generally, we are conscious of our own body, of our own mind, of our own daily affairs, our family, and so forth. And our consciousness or awareness of God is very small. But Krishna tells us, Yam Yam Bapi Swam Bhavam Twajachantet Kalevaram Tamtame Vaitikantaya Sadhatad Bhavitaha. Whatever consciousness we have determines our future, determines everything. Everything is moved by our consciousness and our awareness. We tend to see it backwards. We tend to see that the circumstances in life create my consciousness, but actually it's my consciousness and awareness that creates my circumstances in life. And if we're conscious of Krishna, Srila Prabhupada writes in Krishna book, then the whole world appeals to be very happy. You know, many times we emphasize Dukalayamashashvatam, Asukam Anitam. This is a miserable place. But it's only a miserable place if one is not in consciousness of Krishna. If one in consciousness of Krishna, one sees Krishna everywhere. So Krishna gives us a very easy way to see him everywhere, to see him in light. I am the light and the luminous objects, he says. So how is Krishna light? Well, light gives us knowledge. Uh, We equate very much knowledge with being able to see things as they are, which can only be done with light. So that's in a literal sense, but also in a figurative sense. Enlightenment is often a a synonym for transcendental knowledge, for realized knowledge. And Krishna talks about that, that spiritual knowledge lights up everything, like the sun lights up everything in the daytime. And we use expressions like that. Oh, I see. Someone's explaining something to us. Well, it's like this. Oh, I see. And whenever we see, we have such wonderful sounds here. That was a very sweet sound. So whenever we, we are aware of light, to become aware of light, not to let it fade into the background, and we can remember, oh, that is Krishna, that is knowledge. Also, light is very welcoming. Someone asked me, why do we offer the Lord lights? But if you're going to welcome someone into your life, you turn on the lights. Right? If a guest is coming, you turn on the outside lights, you turn on the inside lights. It's a a sign of welcome, that we are welcoming the Lord into our life. One of our acharyas, Bhaktivinoda Thakura, said, Prema Pradipa Arati Tamar. 
I will offer, offer you our cheek, not with a light made of cotton and ghee, but I will offer you our cheek with the light of my love. And in fact, we very much associate light with love, with warmth, <laughs> with caring, with welcoming. Right? Also, light is associated all over the world, in all cultures, with festivity and holidays. It doesn't matter what is the culture, whether it's a religious culture, whether it's a secular culture, when there's a festival, people have fireworks, they decorate everywhere with lights, they turn on lights, different colors of lights. And we can remember when we see light that the Bhagavatam says in the spiritual world, every day is a festival. Of course, in this world, if we talked about every day being a festival, we might feel tired. <laughs> Do I have to host the festival? <laughs> right? Or if we think if we just attend the festival, we might feel fat. Right? We think every day is a festival. So in this material, in material consciousness, uh, even that's not very pleasant. But in the spiritual world, every day is a festival, but there's no hard work. Every step is like dancing, every word is like singing, and there's no question of work. Everything is just lila. Everything is simply just play. Then, of course, also, uh, light is the source of our food. Have you ever thought about that? That everything we're eating is a transformation of light. So sorry to remind you of your elementary school science classes, if you didn't like school. <laughs> but remember that... Everything we're eating is plants, even those who are non-vegetarian are eating animals who are eating plants. So everything is coming from the plants, and how are the plants getting their food? The plants are getting their food from the sunlight and from water and a few minerals from the earth, but primarily from sunlight. The plants are transforming the sunlight into food. Isn't that interesting? We never really thought about that. You know, I mean, how often do we even think that when I'm eating some rice, I'm eating some roti, it's turning into a fingernail. <laughs> you know, my fingernail was a piece of broccoli yesterday. And, and the broccoli was, was sunlight. And actually, the, these bodies that we have are simply transformations of sunlight. And indeed, the same thing with the lamps we're offering. How is it that we get fire? Where does the fire come from in the lamp? So we have cotton. What is cotton? Cotton is a plant. And the plant cotton is getting its nourishment from the sun. So it's bringing the heat and light from the sun into that plant. And then we're dipping the cotton usually into ghee. Ghee, of course, is coming from the milk of the cow. And the cow is eating the grass. <laughs> and so the cow is transforming, you know, the grass has transformed the light and the heat from the sun into the grass. The cow is eating it and transforming it into milk. We're able to extract an oil from that. Or if we're using oil from some plant, sunflower oil or other kinds of oil, what is that? It is the energy of the sun. That we can release it, and a little bit of the light and heat from the sun is again manifested. So that's... How can anybody... I just cannot fathom... I hope none of you are atheists here. I'm not offending anybody. But I, I cannot fathom how somebody can be an atheist. That the light and heat of the sun is transformed through all these steps into ghee from the cow's milk and with a little friction, again, a little tiny portion of that heat and light from the sun is again 
manifest. And the same even with our digestive process. The heat in our body, our bodily temperature, is coming from the sun. So when we offer this lamb to the Lord, what are we doing? We're connecting with this original light of the sun, and the light of the sun is a tiny fraction. It's a little fraction. Of the effulgence of the Lord. Tiny, tiny, tiny fraction. And this effulgence of the Lord that gives not just knowledge of where to park your car, but it gives knowledge of reality. Who am I? I am a spiritual being. What is the purpose of life to connect again with my source, the supreme spiritual being, in a loving relationship? So this is all ways in which we can meditate on light, that this Kartik festival that we observe for one month every year of lighting lamps to the Lord can remind us all the time, not just when we're in the temple. We don't want to have a religious system where when I come to the temple, then I remember God, and the rest of the time, he's gone. No? Okay, God's there in this little sliver of my life, and the rest of my life is materialistic. And an easy way that we can spiritualize our entire life is to use these ideas given in the Bhagavad Gita by Krishna, where he says, I am this, I am this, I am this. He says also, I am the heat in fire. He says, I am the light of all luminous objects, and I am the heat in fire. Now, of course, light reminds us of something very much directly about the personality of Godhead. So far, we've been speaking about light in a very indirect way, which is useful because we're dealing with light in our lives, but also, light is very much connected with form. We cannot perceive form without light, and particularly light is connected with beauty. There's no meaning to beauty. Beauty is something for the eyes. And the most beautiful person is Krishna. If we took all the beauty in the whole universe, I mean, if we think about the beauty on this planet, there's a lot of beauty on this planet. We went to our Phoenix Center the other day, and it's, it's up on a hill, and you have this gorgeous view of, of Durban. We were in Cape Town a few weeks ago, and you see again the ocean and Table Mountain. That's so, there's so much beauty in this world. Even just the flowers, the flowers we have here on the property are, are so beautiful. Or all the creatures... You know, here in Africa, you're famous for your beautiful creatures, right? Tigers and leopards and lions and elephants and zebras. All the beauty of the mountains and the lakes and the beauty of the sunrise and the sunset and the spring bucks and the impalas and beautiful people. And that's on this planet. So much beauty on this planet. Almost inconceivable how much beauty there is. And we're told in the scriptures that on higher planets there's far more beauty. Thousands of times uh, more beautiful areas and animals and trees and colors. And Krishna says if you take all of that, all of the splendor of everything in the whole universe and put it together, it would be one tiny, 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 tiny fraction of the beauty of the Lord. Which is why when great saints see the Lord, they, they can't even speak. They often faint in ecstasy 
they become stunned and they just shiver right? seeing something someone so beautiful they can't even possibly imagine so in this month of Kartik there's two particular forms of the Lord on whose beauty and qualities and grace and, and love and sweetness and grandeur and perfection we meditate and those are of course Lord Ramachandra and Krishna in his baby form so we'll just speak a little bit about each of them. So, of course, in this Kartik month, uh, the Diwali festival especially, which extends practically over the whole month, is, right, is particularly about Lord Ramachandra and his return to Ayodhya, when the whole city of Ayodhya lit lights everywhere to welcome him back to the city. So Lord Ramachandra is so incredibly beautiful. When he came to Mithila to win the hand of Mother Sita, so everybody just wanted to come and see him. People would, they would just drop whatever they were doing and they would go to their balconies and they were running out of the street uh, just so they could see him. And even the demons, even Shurpanika was allured by his beauty. And then she... She basically lost her intelligence along with her nose and ears <laughs> because of being so attracted by his beauty. Of course, Lord Brahmachandra is not only attractive because he's supremely beautiful, but also because he's so dependable. Uh, he's so full of truth and, and dharma and righteousness that Lord Ramachandra was willing to live in exile in the forest for 14 years simply to uphold the truthfulness of his father. How much the Lord is willing to sacrifice himself so his devotees are known as somebody wonderful. He doesn't want anyone to criticize his devotees. Oh, that Dasarath, you know, he, he, he didn't keep his promise out of affection for his son. So he wants his devotees to be glorified and he will undergo hardship for his devotees. You know, often we think of God as, and rightly so, as somebody to whom we should sacrifice. We should sacrifice to Him. We should surrender to Him. But it's good to remember that He is also sacrificing and surrendering to us out of of love. It's like ordinary father, they'll sacrifice something for for their child out of love. So this is the mood of Lord Ramachandra. And it's, it's so interesting with Lord Ramachandra, not only was he willing to sacrifice for his father's righteousness, but he also sacrificed for his brother Bharat. And it's such an interesting twist on this dharma. And what is a lower dharma? What is a higher dharma? So Bharat, by the intrigue of his mother, was given the kingdom in his absence when he returned and found out that his mother had awarded him the kingdom by exiling his brother Rama and by twisting a promise of his father to his own advantage, he refused to accept that. His mood was, I will not accept anything that is going to put my brother Rama at a disadvantage. And this is not simply ordinary brotherly love in the world, which is a laudable thing, undoubtedly, but this was devotion to the Lord. And this is the mood that we should have, that I will not accept anything of value in this world if it means my relationship with the Lord and the glorification of the Lord will be hampered. 
So that was Bharat's mood. And he went to Ram in the forest with great difficulty and he said, I'm, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to be the king. It doesn't matter. I'm, I'm just not doing it. And Ram said, but you have to because this was our father's promise. With Ram's you know, total dedication to truthfulness and righteousness and, and dharma. And Bharat just kept refusing. And Ram was in this, this called a dharma sankat. He was in this moral dilemma that how could he both uphold his father's honesty and reciprocate with the love of his brother. And finally he said, all right, all right. Officially I will be the king. You don't have to be coronated. But you rule in my stead. You rule as my representative. And that way he was able to adjust everything. So this is the beauty, another kind of beauty, not beauty of form perhaps, but a beauty of character of Lord Ramachandra. That he cared about making sure that all of his devotees were happy. That it wasn't that that one was happy at the expense of another, uh, but that everybody was happy. Uh, Lord Ramachandra in the forest, also he took great care to protect the sages. Even though Sita argued with him and she said, you know, you're not here as the king, you're here basically in exile, what business do you have going around being a warrior? And he said, no. I may be in exile, but still I need to care for my devotees here in the forest. And of course, Lord Ramachandra is also very beautiful in the fact that he accepts the service of non-humans. You know, throughout religious history, in all religions, there are attempts by the priestly class to claim some sort of exclusivity in relationship to the Lord. And this happens, happens in the Hindu faith, in the Christian faith, in every faith. There's this tendency, even in the religious groups that try for strict egalitarianism, like, say, the Amish or the Quakers, even they have elders and leaders that claim to have more of an access to the Lord and to understanding of the scriptures than anybody else. And we find in religious systems uh, that these authorities tend to misuse their power, they tend to exploit people in general, and they tend to say things like, you know, you can't approach the Lord, you have to go through us, we have to be the mediators of the, of the instructions of Shastra and so forth. And it gets to a point that it starts being by birth. You have to take birth in a priestly family. You have to have a particular kind of body and and so forth and so on. And things get further and further and further away from actual dharma. So one of the beauties of Lord Ramachandra is that he fully accepted as saintly beings those who were not in human forms. So he had many devotees, of course, who are monkeys. And any of you who've been around monkeys, uh, yeah, so if you've spent time in in India, particularly with the monkeys, uh, they're not exactly very high-class creatures, right? Well, my my daughter and son-in-law lived in India for many years, and they warned me, don't feed any monkeys. They said, then they'll just come around all the time, and they'll cause trouble, They'll tear the clothes off the clothesline and rip them into shreds just for no reason other than 
vandalism, which will be the fate, of course, of the human vandals. And this life, they'll become monkeys. <laughs> and they'll get to uh, vandalize without sin. You know, and then they'll break the, the water tanks and ruin all that. Just simply mischief. And indeed, we find that the monkey devotees of Lord Ramachandra, they were still monkeys. It's not that they weren't monkeys anymore. You know, when Hanuman's party came to the shore of the ocean and Hanuman jumped over and found Sita and burned down Lanka, then he returned and he told the monkeys, I found Sita, I gave her Ram's ring and I burned down Lanka. And then they came back to Kishkinda. So, you know what they did? They, they started going to the orchards of Sugriva and they were just, you know, taking so many fruits off the trees, the trees were falling down. You know, they were having such a big celebration, they were causing havoc. And there were some complaints, but Lord Ramachandra said, that's okay, they're just celebrating, this is how monkeys celebrate. So they, they were still monkeys, is, is my point. But they were pure devotees, they were saints. They were enlightened beings. Perhaps the most astonishing non-human that Lord Ramachandra accepted was Jatayu, who was a vulture. He wasn't an eagle or something, you know? <laughs> or even a crow, I mean, he was a vulture. And vultures are universally despised. They have a very important uh, service to do in the ecosystem of the world. Like I know, uh, some years ago there was this disease called swine flu. And so, they, I don't know if it was just the mayor of Cairo or the president of Egypt, but somehow he decided, without having done any research, that swine flu was particularly spread by swine. I mean, that would be a logical conclusion, <laughs> uh, but it wasn't, didn't happen to be true. So he ordered all the pigs in Cairo killed without realizing what they were contributing to the ecosystem. And they, they really had a garbage problem, uh, quite literally, after they, after they did that. It was, it was very severe. So vultures have a place in the ecosystem, uh, but still nobody likes them. They're the symbol of those who profit from others' misfortune and those who desire others' misfortune. Right? As soon as somebody's sick, you're like, yes! <laughs> but Lord Ramachandra had two vulture devotees, Jitayu and Sampati. And Jitayu was such an amazing devotee. Uh, I was in New York, I guess this was 1976, when Srila was there for the, our first New York Rathiatra. And we had a professional theater in the temple, absolutely professional. Stage, curtains, and sound booth, and everything. And we had some devotees there that were very uh, first-class actors. So for many, many years, they performed a Ramayana drama there in New York, and I got to be part of that drama for a few months. But anyway, at that time, uh, and most of these devotees are not living anymore, Rasikya, was uh, Sita and uh, uh, Lord Taksha uh, was Ram and uh, so these people they've all, they've all left this planet uh, those actors anyway so Srila Prabhupada was sitting in the audience watching this drama uh, he, he said that, that Rasa was the best actress in the world and he was, he was very pleased and I was sitting maybe two rows behind him 
And I remember particularly at this scene when Ravana is carrying away Sita and Jatayu, who had been guarding the her- hermitage at uh, Panchavati. So he sees Ravana carrying away Sita and Ram and Lakshman are not there because they've gone after this uh, illusory deer, Marich in this illusory deer form. So there was no one to protect Sita. Just Jatayu comes forward. And I remember the scene where Sita says to Jatayu, No! She was very emotional. No! And just imagine, you know, you're being kidnapped by Ravana. So you think that you'd want to get help from anybody who was willing to help you. But Sita's mood was, I don't want to get help at Jatayu's expense. Better I'm carried away by Ravana than than that Jatayu, my devotee, is injured or killed. This is the mood of, of of the Lord. Again, please don't think that giving to the Lord is a one-way street. Don't think that the Lord is some kind of just taker. He's a giver. He has as much love for his devotees, more love actually, for his devotees than they have for him. The Lord's capacity for love is much greater than ours, right? Like we're offering a little lamp, he's offering us a sun. And so something, something like that. So Sita said, no, no, don't save me. She says, you're too old. He's much stronger than you. And this battle went on, and of course, Jatayu was left dying. But I remember watching this, particularly that scene. I mean, it was maybe a two-hour drama, but particularly that scene, I remember that it was watching it with Srila Prabhupada because of Srila Prabhupada's devotion. The, the, the whole theater basically vanished. And it wasn't, we weren't in a theater. And we weren't in New York City. We were in the Dundaka Forest. And it wasn't actors on the stage. It was really Jatayu, and it was really Sita, and it was really Ravana, and it was really Ram. So this, this great love that Ram has when Ram and Lakshman found Jatayu, uh, they performed the funeral rites for him as if they were their own father. Who would perform the funeral rites for a vulture? You understand? But this is the beauty of Lord Ramachandra. He doesn't see the outward form. He doesn't count the outward form. He he doesn't look at something like that. He looks at the devotion. In this world, people just look at the outward form. They just look at the results, you know, what grade you got on your exam, or how much money did you make, or how beautiful your body is or how much information you know, or they just look at those outward things that are so much not even under our control, isn't it? It's such a a false world. They were all giving credit and accolades and appreciation for things that are just external. And our real effort and our real motivation and our heart and our love isn't even seen by others. All they see is the external result, which they may not even appreciate that. Especially if they live with us all the time, they may take it for granted. But Krishna sees the devotion. He doesn't see the externals. He doesn't see, oh, this is a vulture. And he doesn't see, and he failed. He doesn't see, oh, Jatayu failed. He didn't stop Ravana. He doesn't say, oh, what's the use of you? 
He says, you tried. You tried your best. You gave everything. This is the beauty of God. This is the beauty seen not just in an external light that shows us the form, but it also is in the light of internal realization, of internal knowledge, of internal enlightenment that shows us the Lord's grace in such a way that we say, you know, I really want to devote myself to the Lord. I want to stop devoting my heart and my mind to the temporary flickering things of this world that don't give me real satisfaction ever. But let me devote myself to such a wonderful Lord. And then uh, the other form of the Lord that we particularly meditate on this month is the Lord is a little child. And that's especially astonishing. I mean, okay, Lord Ramachandra, he's there as the supreme Dharmic king. And we very much have an idea in the world of God as the supreme Dharmic king. The fighter of evil, the wielder of the bow, the protector of women, the protector of the animals, the protector of the sages, bringing happiness to the people. Yes, this is our idea of God. But in, in how many faiths is their idea of God as a little crying two-year-old boy? <laughs> who, who can hardly talk. His mother's churning. She's churning the yogurt into butter. And he wants some breast milk and he doesn't even talk. He just comes and holds the rug and indicates to her indirectly, I'm hungry. You know, please feed me. What kind of an idea of God is that? Depending on, on, a, on a mother to feed him? Getting tied up and, and stuck on the, on the grinding morning? Having to wait till his father comes and unties him? Having to steal butter? Oh, God have to steal you know, in, in his talks with Rukmini, Krishna, Krishna Dwarka says to her, you know, I'm penniless. You should marry somebody who has some money. And she says, it's a fact that you don't own anything, Lord, because you already are everything, she said. So if you are everything, why would you have to steal? So this concept of God, I think, is very, very difficult to understand. Uh, Ramachandra, maybe we can Little Krishna, little Damodar, to understand. So to understand Krishna as little Damodar, we need the help of the saintly persons. And the saintly persons tell us that the beauty of the Lord as Damodar is not found in a philosophical understanding of God, but an affectionate understanding. And it is because of this affectionate understanding of God, along with other things, that so many of us throughout the world, even if we weren't born into families where Hinduism was the religion, said, yes, this is the understanding of God that I want. God who doesn't just taste the happiness of majesty and power and grandeur and dharma, and truth, but a happiness of dependent love. 
and forgetfulness of majesty and truth in the service of that dependent love. And so now we have yes, yes, yes. So now we have. Well, there you go. So now we have uh, for the transcendental pleasure of the Lord and all of his devotees some nice meditation. Uh, this kind of dance is also a kind of kata. Kata is not only in just speaking, but in the same spiritual world. Every step is a dance and every word is a song. So we have a, a nice dance here of this affection, ultimate affection and ultimate rasa of the Lord as Damodar, that he appears as a little boy being tied up by his mother. Of course, even when he's a little boy being tied up by his mother, he still shows that he's God. Because although she takes all the ropes in the village, and although he already has a belt around his waist, with all the ropes in the village, she's not able to tie 